Welcome to The Working Therapist with Hayden Bolick, a podcast designed to help you grow more, do more, and be more as a therapist. The Working Therapist is an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. We're glad you've joined us for today's podcast. So here's your host, Hayden Bolick. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of The Working Therapist. I'm Hayden Bolick, your host, and today I am so very pleased and excited to have our guest, Susan L. Roberts, who is an occupational therapist, nutritionist, and integrative health coach. So I am so excited to have Susan with us today. Welcome, Susan. Well, thanks so much, Hayden, for having me. It's very exciting to be on this podcast. You do such great work with this. Well, I appreciate it. You know, I've been doing this for a long time. You've been doing this for a long time. And so when you find people that match with kind of what you believe in to sort of help these kids, it's exciting and it makes you want to talk to them and find out more about them. So that's what prompted this today. And the fact that several of our therapists here at PDT went to one of your classes recently, Play With Your Food, and they were so excited. And now I'm so excited because I've just done a lot of research of what you have done and what you're about. So we really wanted to talk. So that's how this whole thing got started in terms of your invitation to be on this podcast. So again, thank you. Welcome. And why don't you introduce yourself and tell the people who are listening a little bit about you know, what you do and who you are. Well, my name is Susan Roberts, and I usually go by Susan L. Roberts because there's a lot of, you know, Susan Roberts out there. And I'm an occupational therapist. I got interested in therapy and all kinds of stuff by reading I did when I was quite young and thought about drama therapy and all sorts of stuff like that and ended up working at an Easter Seals camp. And that's where I found out about occupational therapy. Hmm. So then I went to Boston University and studied there. And then I got interested when I moved to Tucson, Arizona in traditional healers and looking at the neurobiology of that, the sensory integration really was what I was most interested about that. Mm-hmm. And that led me to Harvard. And from there, I've you know been on a journey and integrative nutrition was part of that. And I'm actually now studying Qigong with mm. a really gifted teacher and practitioner, Dr. Nan Lu. Wow. I didn't even know about that, Susan. That's really cool. So the OT came first. And then how did you pair up the nutrition piece with that? Like, how did that happen? Well, I come from a family of foodies. And Uh so food has always been something and cooking has been something that we've enjoyed for generations. And I was working actually in a high school and somebody left a brochure for the Institute of Integrative Nutrition there. And I brought it home and got interested in it. They looked beyond just the food at four other areas, career, relationships, spirituality, and physical activity. And Mm. that just sounded like OT to me. So I thought, oh, good, I'll go and learn about the food. (laughs) And I was always, you know, I've always been interested in feeding and mealtimes and was really lucky to be able to work uh, in Tucson, Arizona for many years where Marsha Dunn-Klein lives. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, whenever we had a feeding issue, she'd be the person we'd call She was a wonderful Mm -hmm. mentor in a way for me as well. I think everything actually fits under that OT umbrella. If you really want to know the truth, Susan, I don't think there's anything I haven't found yet that an OT can't help with. (laughs) I'm going to be honest with you. Whenever I'm treating, that's sort of an ongoing joke here at PDT that whenever I'm treating, I'm always like, oh, I think we could use an OT help with this. So I haven't found many things that aren't applicable to occupational therapy. I'm sort of joking, a little tongue in cheek, but Not really. So I can kind of get the whole nutrition because it does fit with feeding therapy and sensory issues and all kinds of things that we see for little people who have food, you know, types of issues, whatever they may be. So that makes sense to me. 
And the eating and mealtimes connect to everything else on the <laughs> occupational therapy framework and practice. Every other area of occupation is either directly or indirectly involved with eating exactly. and mealtimes. So I've really begun looking at it in that respect as well. Well, I mean, a baby's born, they have to eat. I mean, it's the most important right. thing they do all day long. So there you go. And it starts... After breathing. Right, and, exactly. And hydration. Yep, food <laughs> is next. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it just goes along with it. Then what motivated you to sort of specialize in the area of pediatrics? You talked about the Easter Seals camp. Is that how you got interested in the field of pediatrics with OT or? I read a lot of stories and biographies of people like Helen Keller and various other kinds of books like I Never Promised You a Rose Garden, all kinds of books like that when I was in middle school and high school. And I think that that already set me on the path Oh. if you will. And then I worked between my junior and senior year of high school at Pine Tree Camp in Rome, Maine. And that sealed the deal, really. That's where I really, you know, got to meet and, and be with kids and fell in love with those kids and the staff that worked with them. And that's really how I got into Boston University and began pursuing occupational therapy. Gotcha. And I've worked with Easter Seals quite a bit through the years. And a lot of their camps and a lot of their centers and stuff, they've got some really great little kiddos and a lot of good stuff happening there. So lots of fun. And I worked throughout the lifespan because I've worked in skilled nursing facilities, taught mm -hmm. at adaptive driving, done all sorts of pretty interesting stuff. But I always come back to the kids. A lot of times people ask me you know, about pediatrics. I'm like, this is where the joy is for me. This is where the joy is. These little people, mm -hmm. they're all on the way up. For them, the future is like, hey, it's yeah. bright. They can do whatever they want to do. So we're just here to help them a little on the way with maybe areas of challenge so they can do whatever they want to do in this life. So exactly. Yeah. yeah, there's lots of possibilities, which I like. So let's start with this class, because for us talking to you originated with play with your food, your class, which I think is fantastic. So can you tell us a little bit about the class play with your food and sort of what people would get from coming to this class and who would benefit from this information, sort of give us an overview of that kind of thing? Well, I've taught this class for probably about four or five years. It was originally called Mealtime Success, and then it became Play With Your Food. And I'm just getting ready to do a two-day version of the class for mm. education resources in California and Los Angeles in a couple of weeks. And it's going to be called Linking Play, Self-Regulation, and Mealtime Success. Mm. So that's what I do is I provide an integrative way of looking at it where we really focus on play because that's the primary occupation of childhood. And I think a lot of times what I've found in feeding therapy is people get real focused on the mechanics of it, the oral motor and the hand to mouth. And they forget that eating is something that we do because we enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And if you take that piece out, you're going to have problems. So we really try to bring that back in and look at it from a developmental perspective and also from really, you know, regaining the joy of eating. I love that because one of your slides is have fun. If it's not fun, it won't get done. And therapy has to be fun. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because I love that whole context or that framework. I love that. Me too. And I think OTs and speech therapists, you know, we pretty good at playing together. Yeah, we are. Um, <laughs> and having fun together. At least I've had some really good times with, you know, I have some speech therapy buddies that I've co-treated with over the years. And, mm -hmm. But I think that the body never lies, as my teacher, Dr. Lou says, when you look at it, if you start looking at the body and what happens when we have fun is you get, you know, outpourings of oxytocin and all sorts of other wonderful hormones that just set the body 
up for learning, set the body up for making social connections. And really, in a sense, you know, it's like the sunshine that brings the flowers out. It makes so many connections and it enables us to join in not just the body, but also engaging the mind and engaging creativity and I think that enjoyment opens up the heart. And in Chinese medicine and traditional Chinese medicine, that's exactly the emotion that's associated with the heart and also with digestion. And it is something that needs to be there all the time, in a sense, or else without that, it's just like if the heart stops beating, you're in trouble. If the joy goes out of your life and have fun goes out of your life, then you're in trouble. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of these little kids that we work with, Food has never been a fun or a positive situation. Mm-hmm. Even the little people, like a lot of the preemies we work with who have severe reflux, you know, they've never had a positive body feeling related to food. It's always been negative. It's always hurt. You know, they eat, yes. their tummy yes. gets filled and things hurt. And their normal is, oh, this eating thing is not fun. Exactly. It doesn't make me feel better. And so I love that whole perspective because if you start there with fun and play, which is what kids do, like you say, the occupation of childhood, because that's really the heart of it, just like what you said. Right. And we also know that the vagal nerve plays a huge role in mm-hmm. all of this. And at the end of all those nerve endings is where all the inflammatory cells live. So if we're not enjoying our food, we're far more apt to develop an allergy to it. You know, and if we have an allergy, of course, that just, you know, get into an even increasingly negative feedback loop. And so really in my courses, I start with the vagal nerve. And and take a look at that and what's going on and why, you know, the myth is that if they get hungry, they'll eat. And these are kids who will not, they will go down before they'll put an unfamiliar food in their mouth. And it's, you know, been really hard for parents, for practitioners, for doctors, everybody really is not quite sure what to do with these kids because how can you refuse to do a life-sustaining activity? You know, that's, I think, what's really tough about these kids. Exactly. I agree. I think, you know, just to say, oh, well, when they get hungry, they'll eat. They won't eat. They won't. Mm-mm. They really won't. And I think <laughs> unless you've worked with these kids. Right. I mean, I've said that to a number of people who've never worked with a child, particularly a child with autism, and they're like, sure, they'll get hungry and eat. They won't. No. They really honest. They pass out before they eat. That's not going to happen. Yeah. How do you start with play or, you know, where do you start to begin to make it fun? And I know this is part of your class, but can you get if it's just sort of a sure how you sort of start or your framework for starting? I start usually by getting a play evaluation. Mm. And I use what I call now the Rainbow Kids Play Scale, which was originally developed by Susan Knox and called the Knox Preschool Play Scale. But I use it beyond preschool. It looks at play behavior. So it's great for our kids that don't respond well to if you give them the same verbal direction twice using the same exact words as we have to do for standardized tests oftentimes, and then they don't get it. We don't get a true measure. But if we observe the child, we really do begin to get a true measure of what they can do and can't do. And we do it, you know, using, you know, our memory of a child in the seminars, which works rather well. And we take a look at developmentally, where is the child? Not by their chronological age. And that was Really, the big shift that I made between Susan Knox's play scale and the Rainbow Kids play scale is I took out Mm -hmm. the numbers and replaced them with colors. And the score will actually give you a months and age numerical score that changes over time. But it's so much more helpful to tell the mother of a 12-year-old that her child is an orange and that they're going to do really well with all the stuff in the orange column 
and, you know, on a good day, we'll challenge them with stuff from the yellow column. But if they're having a rough day and they're not feeling too good, maybe we'll drop down to do stuff from the red column. And then I can color code a lot of different things that way. And I love to color code. So I do that. <laughs> well, then your class, you give them yes. like red sensor, you know, yellow movement. Yes. blue. Yeah, you give that information. So you make it really easy for people to follow and use your guide. But just talking about colors and how simple and easy it makes it here at PDT, I one day was trying to figure out how to divide our people into teams. And I was standing in my daughter's kindergarten classroom and the teacher said, okay, red table, get up and wash your hands. And I thought, there you go. Red, do this. I can follow that. So see, I love it because sometimes, you know, as a therapist and then also as a parent, let's make it as simple and easy as possible. Because with these kids, you, if you break it down to the simple place, it seems to me right. so much more successful for everybody. Right. So I love exactly. these color things because it's simple, it's clear. Hey, I'm going to do this. And as a parent, I know I can be successful. And as a therapist, I know I can be successful. I love it. And especially because a lot of these kids, as you say, you know, that food itself is so fraught with anxiety for them that we bring it away from the table mm-hmm. and begin to play in different ways. You know, first of all, just straight up without food involved at all, develop a relationship through play. And then once we have that trusting relationship, then we can begin to introduce foods in a playful way that doesn't require the child to eat it. You know, eating is the quintessential self-regulating activity. In order to take it in and digest it, you have to be able to receive it. You have to be open to receiving it. And they've done some pretty interesting studies in different places that show actually you don't absorb the nutrients even Mm. if you don't like the food, if you don't have a positive relationship with the food, if you don't like it, if it's not familiar to you, if it's not something that you enjoy, you won't absorb the nutrients Mm. or not as thoroughly. Wow. It makes complete sense. One other thing that I love about the colors and the simplicity, it's complex, but it's simple because you're breaking it down with fact and data and research, but then you make it simple for parents to follow and in your class for therapists to use this plan because a mom's job at first the most important thing for a mom or dad to do is to feed their child and feed their baby and if you can't do that then you can easily go to the place where you're like not successful with your child so if the child is at the red sensory stage and your job for that week is to have them observe or just to watch then if you're like okay yes we did all that thing then I've been successful that week so I'm one step closer I love it. Right. And that's so important for parents, especially if they're having challenges with kids. And I think, you know, I mean, the whole parenting role is very fraught with challenge all along the way. And I just want parents to understand that they're doing a good job. And most of the time they're doing a good job. I used to show this one video when I first started teaching the class and it was on YouTube. So I downloaded it. God bless the mom who put it up there. Um, But it was hard to watch. I mean, therapists had to get up and walk out of the room sometimes because it was a force feeding situation. But what I would challenge them to do is at the end, tell her what she's doing right. Oh, wow. Because it's so clear what she's doing wrong, but you don't get to tell her what she's doing wrong. You only get to tell her two things. You get to tell her what she's doing right, what you like and why you like it. And give her just one tip that will help her next session out. Just one tip. Mm. You know, we know so much. We want to share so much that we tend to give too much at once. And it's too much. I learned this as a coaching technique Mm -hmm. at the Institute of Integrative Nutrition. And it has been a huge challenge for me to catch myself either as soon as the tip tumbles out of my mouth, I commit to it, whatever. And that's it for the session. 
Right. Or sometimes if I've lost it, I can at the end say, you know, we talked about a lot of things, but just give me one thing you want to work on this week. One thing, because yeah. our lives are so busy and helping parents get things simple. And I also, am, I'm a hugger. So, you know, and a lot of times I'm doing phone coaching, but when I'm face to face with somebody and they say, oh, you know, we cook at home and eat together as a family. I always give moms a hug for that or dads. <laughs> I'm like, you have no idea how important that is. That is like the most important thing that you can do for your child. Right. And for moms who breastfeed too, I the same mm-hmm. kind of thing. I mean, it's a huge commitment, but it is one that just has such wide ranging effects. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as I try to lead them, you know, we've, the positive psychologists have done a lot of wonderful studies and they show that if you focus on what people are doing right, it pulls everything up. Yeah. But when you focus on what they're doing wrong, it pulls everything down. So I really have worked as much as I could to keep it simple and to keep it positive. That makes complete sense to me. I love it because you start with the positive place where the child and the family is, and you can't treat the child without the family. You, they're your partner in helping this little person overcome the obstacles. And right. so I think when you start with, okay, here's what you're doing right, because you know if you've got a child who's medically involved, there's so many things this family has been faced with in terms of wrong, you know, if you're framing it that way. So it's great to be able to say, okay, here's the positive. This is our springboard. Let's go from here. And the colors make it simple and easy and like, okay, we're on the red. Red's the focus this week. And I love that. And I love you talk about good food in your class as well, like with the breastfeeding and also then the cooking at home with your child. You know, if you're making your meals at home, how it's so important. Can you talk to us a little bit about good food and what you consider to be good food and like the impact of that in your therapy? Wow. Well, I think there's so many adjectives to describe food. But when you say good food, to me, good food is food that looks, smells, feels and tastes good. Mm. And that makes it good food. And a lot of times that may not be the most nutritious choice, (laughs) (laughs) but it is good food. And I think sometimes for kids, you know, we have so many more parameters. I worked with a family and her mom was studying nutrition and she was already like a very picky eater, like only three things. And she had a little kitchen center and stuff. She loved her kitchen center, but her mom kept talking about real food. And, you know, for a four-year-old, the difference between real food and not real food is the stuff in your kitchen food, your kitchen, the <laughs> things made out of wood and plastic are not real. But the stuff that we put on the table, now that's real food. But her mom was actually talking about nutritious food. I had a wonderful blog post I read the other day by somebody else. And they said, you know, food is not healthy. Food is nutritious. People are healthy. <laughs> nutritious food helps mm. people to become healthy. So when we talk about nutritious food, then we begin to look more at the macronutrients, which is proteins, fats, and carbohydrates. And then we look at the micronutrients, which are the things that we need in much less quantity, but are also still essential, you know, vitamins, minerals, those kinds of things. And it gets more and more complex, you know, because this field has taken off and now we're looking at probiotics and I didn't read it, but I saw somebody had a new book out called Eat Dirt. And that's the probiotics, talking about the probiotics Ah. and how important they are. And Perlmutter's book, Brain Maker, Hmm. he gets into that a lot too. And, you know, the field is just expanding a lot. So I try to keep it simple as much as I can in my classes as well, because especially for therapists, nutrition is new for a lot of us. Yeah, it is new for a lot of us and we're not nutritionists. And so you've got to start with where, like we talked about before, where the child is. And if they'll only eat, you know, certain things, you have to sort of find the positives of that food, maybe from those certain things and give them more of that. But so I think that's 
that whole nutrition perspective. And a lot of times I've found myself when I'm working with kids with feeding problems and I don't maybe have a nutritionist who's right there. I can usually reach out and find people to help me with this, but I'm not a nutritionist and a lot of times I don't have one here on staff to work with. So I think in your class, discussing that with therapists is huge to help yeah. give us some clarity and direction to go in. And because we work in a medical field, we really need a registered dietitian when ah. we talk about nutrition mm-hmm. because they're the licensed one. Like I can say I'm a nutritionist because it's an unregulated term. Mm. And it took me years before I felt comfortable saying that about myself. Right. But it's not regulated. And I always point this out at the very beginning of my seminars. It's not a regulated term. And people who have taken the course over the weekend on how to sell vitamin supplements are told to tell people they're a nutritionist. Ah. So whenever you hear nutritionist, you need to ask some more questions like, where was your training? You know, how much experience have you had? Because it's not a regulated term. And there's many dietitians who do use the term nutritionist as well. Mm-hmm. But for those of us in the medical field, we really need to get a hold of dietitians. And they have a website, eatright.org, eatright.org. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And you can put in your zip code and they'll lead you to some dietitians. And huh. I love them. I love when they come to my seminars because then I can refer to them during the course of the seminar so people get to see how helpful they are. They're much calmer about food than we are, much <laughs> calmer because they know more. That's right. I love that. Yeah, exactly. And they're so helpful. They can tell us which foods need to be in the diet. You know, they mm-hmm. need our help because they can come up with the list, but they can't make the kids eat it either. You right. know, it's got to be a collaborative effort. Yeah, that's learning for me. So I love the distinction between the dietitian and the nutritionist because I didn't know that. So that's very helpful. Thank you. And for all the therapists out there listening, great questions to ask. And again, you said that eatright.org. I want to start using that. Yeah, yeah. eatright.org. Put in a zip code and it'll lead you some dietitians. And again, you want to, you know, talk to people because there's, you know, again, a wide range. Some people are more innovative. Some people are more comfortable working with mm-hmm. the population of kids we're working with. Some people, you know, are not. And also, if you're working in an early intervention, there's a dietitian somewhere you can track them down mm-hmm. for the kids who are on the SNAP program or food stamps also right. there's a dietitian exactly and I think a lot of times in my experience I'm working with people who know more about food a lot of times I lump everybody in the same category and call them a nutritionist so I appreciate this distinction but a lot of times in my experience just talking to somebody who knows more about the right foods to eat will decrease the parent stress too because they've built this thing up about, oh, I've got to feed them this, this, this every day. And, right. and sometimes you don't have to. And one of the things I do with my food journals oftentimes mm. is help parents reassure them that the child's doing okay. You know, a lot of my forms that I use are about helping the parent take a breath and realize they're doing okay. The child's not yet in serious danger. I mean, I do see kids that are you know, very nutritionally compromised as well. But but a lot of times it's just like, okay, take a breath, you know, and we're going to add some more foods in mm. to the diet. And that's the other thing is I think that people hear, oh, go on this diet or that diet. With these kids, most of them that have such a narrow range of foods, what we have to do is add in, not get all critical about what they're eating, but add in, add in, add in. And right. once we've got enough of a variety, then we can begin to pick and choose what foods to maybe eliminate from the diet. Well, in your class, you give these handouts about the examples of proteins and fats and the grains and 
you right. know, the carbohydrates and the extra fat. You make it very easy and you give a wide variety of foods so that there's yes. some wiggle room. And that's what I've learned from the dietitians. There's a lot of wiggle room. Yeah. They're really clever about wiggle room. Yes, especially for maybe those of us who aren't foodies. Yes, and I think we have all have a fractured relationship to food because of the world that we live in. Mm-hmm. And a thousand years ago, nobody worried about what to eat. You know, it's like you ate what you could get and it changed season to season. So we all got variety in their diet, which is one of the things that we know you have to have. And nobody ate sugar and flour because it just wasn't available. And those are the foods that really get us into trouble because they're addictive and because they don't carry a lot of nutrition with them. So I try to give as much information as I can to people as simply as I can, because I know how much I needed it in my own, you know, work with kids. And, you know, that's sort of one of my criteria for websites. And, you know, if I can go to a website and they'll give me some free information, then I'll recommend that website. But if I go and all they want to do is sell me something, I'm done. (laughs) That's right. We need the info. And so I, you know, I try to make it as accessible You know, there's a lot of stuff that's available for download on my website. There is. And I want to get into some of the books that you've written as well. Before I get there, I want to ask you about the Greenspan floor time, because you talk about that in your class as well. And I'm a big believer and use the floor time approach. But you tie the floor time into also your colors and the rainbow. So can you talk about that for us and link the two? I can't even remember when I first found the Knox Preschool Play Scale, but it's been such an integral part of my therapy since I found it. And it's been decades that I've used it. Well, when you find something that works, you just go with it. Yeah. (laughs) And and then I also got interested in floor time. Actually, Mm -hmm. I had a play-based clinic in Tucson, Arizona. And one of the parents said, oh, you're doing floor time here, which is the first I'd heard of it. (laughs) And so I then researched it and I went and took the entry-level certificate course. And then I worked for a while at the Rebecca School here in New York City, which is a floor time-based school. So I got some familiarity with the nine DIR levels, which is developmental individual differences, which is like the sensory piece and relationship-based floor time, which I always say floor time is a nine-letter word for play. (laughs) Uh, And I got in trouble using the four-letter version several times at the Rebecca School. But what I realized was that it paralleled the Knox preschool play scale very Mm -hmm. closely. And that was when I realized that I then first began using it by the DIR number levels and then realized that the colors were a simpler, easier way to do that. And I had an anatomy professor way back when I was an undergraduate, and he said, when you use color, you stimulate more brain cells. So Hmm. I've always been a fan of color since then. Well, I was a fan before, but now I had a neurological rationale for it. There you go. That backed you up. But see, the floor time to me just makes sense. And it works. And it's child-centered and focused. Right. It's just there's a lot of functional application for it. So I like it for that. And I like the colors with it because, again, it simplifies it. We know where we are. I like to know where I am because it can get confusing sometimes when you're tweezing out. But you also have written several books. They are on your website as well. And we will reference all that in the podcast notes. But can you tell us a little bit about some of the books you've written? Well, my first teaching job was at the Eastern Kentucky University. And Mm -hmm. I got the human movement or kinesiology class, which is kind of, I've always sort of felt like was a short straw class that Mm. was given to people to teaching, and although I really liked it and was very happy to get it. But there were no textbooks at that time written by OTs. Mm. And I realized how important that was because we have a slightly different perspective on it. So the first book I actually wrote was called Biomechanics, 
problem solving in the context of activity, I think, or problem solving for activity. Mm-hmm. And then when the publisher wanted to do a second edition, I actually cold called professors and asked them if they knew the book or used it. And one of them was David Green. Mm-hmm. And he and I hit it off on the phone and then began collaborating on kinesiology movement in the context of activity, which just came out, third edition last month, actually. So it's brand new and third edition. And I added a whole chapter on sensory applications, looking at them from kinesiological, biomechanical instead of neurological, because we always look at them neurologically. But Mm. we also need to know how do you trigger those nerve endings. And so we look a little bit at that as well. So that's the first two books I wrote. And then I, when I started doing the mealtimes, when I came Mm -hmm. up with my own mealtime book, which is called My Kid Eats Everything, Mm -hmm. The Journey from Picky to Adventurous Eating. And just a great book. Yes, Yes, thank you. Yes, great book. Very helpful. But go ahead. I interrupted you. (laughs) And then I wrote one more and it was Mm -hmm. just a sort of a pamphlet kind of book that came out of that, which is called The Food Explorer's Passport, Mm -hmm. which is just basically some basic instruction and a way to help kids sort of look at exploring foods. Because I think that none of us, especially young children, will not eat unfamiliar foods because we're hardwired not to. Mm From the age of two to eight, basically, or as soon as a child becomes mobile, right. they stop eating everything, which is perfect because who wants a two-year-old toddling around eating every red berry and yellow mushroom? Not a good survival strategy. No. So they all become very picky at that point, and they only eat what they see other people eat. So it becomes really imperative to teach them how to explore new foods. Mm. And for parents and therapists to teach them, you know, how do you decide if something's safe to eat? You know, you look at it. I always say you feed it to the dog first because all good researchers (laughs) test the lab animal first. But, you know, even if you have a play dog, that's fine. But, you know, we look at it, we touch it, we smell it, we taste it, you know, and then maybe we'll eat it. But particularly because we don't know what happens in a child's mouth Mm -hmm. and in their gut, we can't say this food is good for you because we don't know if they're having that allergic reaction or they're having, you know, tummy ache after they eat it. We don't know that. And most of them can't tell us that either. You know, and some kids just associate eating with pain. They just wonder why everybody else is so excited about food. Well, and you say in the beginning part of the book about how the children are the boss of what they're eating and two-year-olds and three-year-olds don't have control of much in their life, but what they eat and put in their mouth, they have control over. And so... This information that you have in here sort of rung true for me because I really believe that the children are the boss, you know, and they control what goes in their mouth. And I don't believe in force feeding any child ever. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen anything positive ever associated with that. That just, again, rang true for me. And it made sense to me as well, because I do believe that children, they're not going to put in their body what doesn't feel right or doesn't feel healthy or a good choice for them. So Right. That's sort of my take on some really wonderful work that uh, has been done by Ellen Satter, mm. E-L-L-Y-N-S-A-T-T-E-R. And she's a dietitian and psychotherapist. And she's written a whole slew of books. And she's got a ton of free stuff on her website. And she's written a slew of really good books. Child of Mine, Feeding with Love and Good Sense was her first book, I think. And it's a classic in the feeding literature. And that's, you know, what she says is you have to let the child decide if they're going to eat and how much. Yeah. You have to do that. And that's the first step. She calls it the division of responsibility. And it rang so true for me. Mm -hmm. And certainly she influenced both Marsha Dunkline and Suzanne Evans Morris, Mm -hmm. who are leaders in the feeding therapy field. 
So that's exciting, cool stuff, people. Tune in next time for the next podcast. And we're going to talk with Susan more about mentorship and her work with children with various diagnoses. Check out Susan's website at SusanLRoberts.com and also ChangesOT.com. She's got her books there, her classes there, great information. Stay in contact with her, hear about latest projects. Great information there. You can also check out the show notes for this podcast at theworkingtherapist.com. So thank you for your time today and catch us next time on another episode of The Working Therapist. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of The Working Therapist, an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. If you would like more information regarding this podcast or would like to get in touch with us for any reason, visit us on the web at www.pediatricdt.com. That's pediatricdt.com.